We're going to be at Colossians chapter 3 tonight. Colossians chapter 3, and we'll be in verses 12 through 17 tonight. You just uh, would follow along with me as I read. <clears throat> so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Let's pray, and we'll get into the text tonight. Lord, I'm thankful so much again for an opportunity to come and, and preach your word. And I'm thankful for your word and, and, the, and the impact it has on our lives, the promised power of it as we interact with it. Uh, Lord, we know that it changes us and you change us through it. And that's my hope tonight, even as I, I uh, preach this message on this text, that um, it's not up to me to change hearts. It's not up to me to change my own heart, Lord, but, but that your word is powerful and changes us. So, Lord, I ask for myself and for those who are here listening, that you would change us, that you would affect those changes in us, that you would reveal to us those areas that we need to improve, that we need to work on as we as we look at this text regarding things to put on. In your name we pray, amen. <clears throat> well, you, if you'll remember, uh, back a few weeks ago, we uh, began what really is sort of the first part of two messages. Uh, verses 5 through 11. And in verse 5 of this chapter, Paul addressed a battle that every Christian has to fight. It's that battle for holiness we talked about, a battle that begins when we are converted and a battle that continues until we die. And in those first uh, seven verses, verses 5 through 11, Paul told us what it is that we must get rid of if we're going to fight this battle. And you may or may not recall, but he told us that, that we must execute sexual sin in every form. And not only that, but we must take off those old, dirty clothes that were worn in our former life. But here's the thing. If we ended at verse 11, which we did, and we never picked up at verse 12 to continue to hear what the, the Bible has to say to us or Paul has to say to us on this, we really just have half the picture in effect, we would be naked because we've just killed sin and taken off our clothes, and now we stand undressed. In fact, I was, I was at lunch today telling somebody what I was going to be preaching on tonight. This person said, well, you've left them for like three weeks with no clothes on. I said, yeah, yeah that's true. So we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna resolve that tonight. And in verses 12 and following, Paul is going to tell us what we must put on. He's going to tell us what this new wardrobe looks like. Back in verses 10 through 11, Paul established a foundation of renewal, a renewal in which all barriers between believers are done away with. And that is because, if you remember, the all and in all Christ. 
this is the reason why the putting off of verses 8 and 9 and the renewal of verses 10 through 11 that Paul now positively instructs the Colossian believers using two rounds of commands. And the first round of commands, which we'll see in verses 12 through 14, involve the what we must do, the what we must put on. In the Greek, Paul starts this verse with the command. The imperative is right there at the beginning, and the imperative, the command is to put on. But you'll notice that he doesn't launch right into a list of things to put on, right? There's, there's, there's something happening there. He begins, rather, with the motivation, the, the basis of the command. It's all, and if you've read a lot of what Paul writes, he does this a lot, doesn't he? <clears throat> it's almost like, oh, wait, hold on. I, I, he starts to say something. Therefore, put on. And he's like, hold on. I, I just, there's something I've got to get clear before I tell you what it is that you have to put on. Now, what he does here goes counter to the thought that we can simply reform ourselves. He doesn't just give us a list of things to do right away. Rather, he begins by giving the motivation for the command. And he does this using these heavily freighted theological terms right here at the beginning of verse 12. He starts out by saying this, chosen by God. And, and any of you who have, who have spent any time in the, in, in the word know that that is, a, that is a freighted, that's a loaded word. In fact, we could probably, I could probably preach an entire message just on that one word, right? That's that Greek word eklektos, from which you get the word elect. It refers to those whom God has chosen from humanity and drawn to himself. Listen, if you're here tonight and you're a believer, it's because God chose you. There's so many verses on this. Again, like I said, we could, we could spend our whole time tonight just doing a study of this one word. But the first text that may come to your mind that came to mind is Ephesians 1, 3 and the beginning of verse 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, we may not be able to, or maybe I should say just we can't, fully grasp God's sovereignty in our salvation and our responsibility. But we know this that God shows us. And we know that scripture teaches that we were by nature hostile to God until he changed our hearts. Colossians 1, 21 through 22, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet now he has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Understand this, you are chosen by God, but you are not a natural born child of God. I don't know how many times you hear that in the news. We're all children of God. Well, we may all, and we do all, bear the image of God, the imago Dei, but we are not all, or any of us, natural-born children of God. You're adopted. You're selected. And I would remind you that this is not the adoption of a cute little baby. This is the adoption of an ugly, wicked, rebellious child. What's involved in human adoptions? Mike, you and Brenda are going through this right now, and you could probably talk for a long time about what's involved. But if, if, the chi- if you adopt a child and that child was in another home, does that child remain there in that other home? Do the, do the parents choose the child and then leave that child to their own devices? No. Their name becomes the child's name. Their home becomes the child's home their life, the child's life. In this same way, when God chooses us, when he adopts us, he does not choose us so that we can remain like we were. He doesn't choose us to remain those ugly, wicked, rebellious children. 
The conclusion to the verse we read earlier, Ephesians 1, 4, tells us why he chose us, that we would be holy and blameless before him. And this is the next freighted term that Paul uses to describe the believers to whom he's writing. Not only are they chosen by God, they are holy, they're sanctified, they're set apart. We've talked before about this word holy in reference to God, just completely other in reference to God. And in reference to us, it means we have been set apart. We are called to be holy. We're chosen and we're holy. And not only that, we are beloved. This, this word refers to someone who's in a very special relationship with another. We might, we would be very appropriate in translating this as dearly beloved. So Paul's saying, chosen of God, holy and dearly beloved. Why is Paul telling us things now? What in the world do these things have to do with the command that he started with? So put on. He's reminding the Colossian believers and he's reminding us that we're not just anybody. We're special. Not like the world tells us, by the way. In fact, when we were on our way to lunch, Autumn said something about we were joking around. We're all special, right? Everybody's special and nobody's special. But we are special. Not like the world tells us, hey, you're important. We're not special because of any innate qualities in us. We're special because we are chosen and we are set apart and we are greatly loved by the God of the universe. He's telling us these things because in light of who we are, we must live a certain way. He's saying you're unique. Now act like it. The proper motivation, in fact, the only true motivation for changing and for putting on these new clothes comes from who and what we are. Therefore, because we are chosen, because we are set apart, because we're beloved, we are to put on certain virtues. In verses 8 and 9, Paul told us what we have to put off. Those old stinking clothes of our former life, sins of anger and speech, But it's not just enough to put away the old ways of thinking. The old ways of sin have to be replaced by positive virtue if we are going to properly display our faith in Christ. So now, Paul shows us the new wardrobe and tells us what it is that we have to put on. And so he says, put on, first of all, a heart of compassion. Or literally in uh, translating the Greek, hearts of compassion. It's plural there. Rather than heart, and this will be more literally understood, I'm going to gross you out, but as intestines. The, the Greeks didn't see the heart as the seat of emotions. Rather, they saw the, the, the intestines, the, the gut, as the seat of emotions. And I think the King James Version translates this spot on. They get it right on when they call it bowels of mercy. The Greeks saw that or believed that the, the people's deepest emotions were in their bowel and their intestines. So we would say, I love you with all my heart. They might say, I love you with all my small intestine. I wouldn't suggest trying that on the woman you love. But in any case, it refers both then and now to the fountain from which our emotions spring. What Paul is conveying is a deep in the gut feeling of compassion for others. A sensitivity to the suffering of others. Real I mean, really feeling the needs of people who are hurting. You could translate the two Greek words here as a heart that displays concern over another person's misfortune. 
the other day, you guys remember maybe a couple weeks ago, we had a, an awful storm that went through over in our, it was bad here, but we had tornadoes and stuff over in our neck of the woods. There's a low-income community there, and that's where my son, Elliot, plays baseball. And so when things had settled down, we had no power for a day and a half or two or whatever it was, and we had nothing to do. So we went, we went out for a drive and, and, and drove through this community called Progress Village. And the destruction was really unbelievable. House roofs ripped off, trees through houses. All of us were looking at this really just amazed by the power of the storm and, and thinking about how powerful God was and how, wow, just just taken back by the, the destruction. But only one of us, my daughter Addie, her first, her first words were as we just, just sort of observed this, she said, those poor people, what are they going to do? None of us did that. And I was rebuked by that. that. That's what Paul is talking about here. It's, it's a heart that feels the hurts of others. And by the way, this is how Jesus was. You know, we focus, a lot of times we get myopic on what we, what we teach about or think about Jesus. We think about Jesus in the temple tearing things up. And that certainly, we don't deny that. That was, that was a part of who he was. And he was angry, and rightfully so. But Jesus was a compassionate man. As Jesus was traveling from town to town teaching and preaching and healing, he was deeply affected by the suffering he encountered. Matthew says in his gospel, chapter 9, verse 36, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus had this heart. He hurt for other people, hurt for their physical needs and saw the suffering and it hurt him. He felt it in his gut. But this was not how the culture of the day was. The sick, the poor, the old, the mentally ill, they were discarded and left to fend for themselves. So this command from Paul is counter-cultural. And he says we are not to be indifferent to one another's suffering. So here's a question. Do you do this? Does your heart break over the suffering of others? I, th- I think it's fair to say, you may take me to task on this later, I don't know, but the only thing that prevents this kind of a heart is selfishness and self-centeredness. Perhaps we try to let ourselves off the hook by saying something like this, I'm just not wired that way. You may be, but I'm just not wired that way. I would say to you and I would say to myself, don't make a mistake. That's sin. If Paul, under inspiration, tells us we must put on a heart of compassion, we must feel the hurts of others, if we do anything other than that, we're sinning. And we're fooling ourselves if we just say things like, I'm not wired that way, and give ourselves an escape. Call it what it is. It's sin. And this is why Paul commanded us to take off those sins of anger and wrath and speech. Sins that, from all, that all flow from thinking about ourselves. He's saying here, stop thinking about yourself and be compassionate towards others. Here's where things get a little sticky. If you have this heart, it's going to work itself out in practical ways, right? Perhaps like James 1.27 pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, what? We have a James scholar over here. To visit orphans and widows in their distresses. 
How many of you guys have visited an orphan or a widow in their distress recently? I'm not just preaching this to you, by the way. Okay, this, this convicts me as well. Have you done this? Sometimes we view this kind of compassion ministry, well, that's the work of the elders. That's the work of Mike and Mark. You guys go do that thing. We'll live our lives. You do your thing. Compassion ministry. That's, guys, that's just not scriptural. This is, this is not addressed just to elders. This is addressed to all believers. We're all to be doing this. So a heart of compassion must result in action. Do we do this? Do you do this? Or are you so caught up in your studies, so caught up in your family life, that you don't have time for anybody else? And I'm talking to myself. You guys just listen in, okay? Well, not only are we to put on hearts of compassion, Paul continues on to tell us that we are to put on kindness. This is really the opposite of that word malice back in verse 8. And while it seems at first somewhat synonymous with compassion, there are a couple verses where Paul used this, or this same word is used, not Paul, but in other places, that will help us understand what Paul is saying here. Luke 5.39, you don't, if you want to turn, it's fine. We're not going to be there long. Luke 5.39 says this, And no one after drinking old wine wishes for new, for he says the old is good enough. And that word there translated by the New American Standard as good is the same as our word kind. In reference to wine, this word speaks of losing harshness, of, of mellowing with age. And Jesus also uses this word when, he's, when speaking of submitting to his yoke in Matthew chapter 11, verses 29 and 30. You guys know these verses. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. We could translate this kind. My yoke is kind and my burden is light. In reference to his yoke, then, this word means it's not harsh. It's not overbearing. Paul is referring here to a sweet disposition, a mellow spirit, the exact opposite of being hard or overbearing. And if you know me, then you know I'm preaching to myself right now. I'm not just saying that. This is not the spirit of a believer. We're not to be hard or overbearing. We're to be kind, soft. It's a friendly and helpful spirit that desires to help other people. And it's not just kindness, by the way, to those that you think are worthy or that I think are worthy of kindness. Christ himself even showed kindness to the ungrateful and the wicked. We see this in Luke 6, 35, where he says, Love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Are, are you kind? I, I hope you ask yourself, I, I always say, am I kind? Beyond just feeling people's pain, feeling their suffering, do you have that sweet spirit that seeks to help others? As this is really convicting to me, very convicting. We must be careful about being harsh, about being hard. Paul, under inspiration, he calls us here to be something different than that. We are to put on kindness. Humility, he mentions next, and that's a term that is widely misunderstood. It was not a positive 
characteristic or a positive term in the Greek world. They despised humility, and they praised pride and domination. However, Jesus elevated humility to its proper place. It's a virtue that we must put on if we want to be his followers or if we are his followers. Literally, this word means lowliness and thinking, recognizing both our own weaknesses and God's power. It does not mean that we have to think poorly of ourselves. The idea here is not necessarily thinking poorly, but having a proper and healthy estimation of who we are, not thinking better of ourselves than we should, not exalting ourselves. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 1.23 when he says, For through the the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Humility really is seeing ourselves as God sees us, that we are unworthy place on which he chose to place his love. And you begin to see perhaps how those freighted words back in the beginning of verse 12, how those mesh with these articles of clothing we are to put on. Humility is taking a place under others in order to be a servant, following the example of Christ in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8, where it says, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If we are not humble, if we have not put on humility, it's because we think too much of ourselves, because we have not come to understand who we are in relation to God. So when Paul tells us to put on humility, to put on this piece of clothing, he's telling us to have a right understanding of who we are before God and a right understanding of how we relate to one another. As we're going through these things, you begin to feel the weight of them compassion, kindness, humility. These aren't light and airy summer clothes. These are working clothes. They're well-made, they're sensible, and they're certainly out of fashion. They're not easy to wear. I think this is why Paul put the motivation first. Listen, if I didn't have in my mind those realities that I'm chosen, that I'm holy, that I'm dearly loved, Frankly, I would give up already. We're not all, all the way through the list, and I would, be, I would just be giving up right now. He talks next about gentleness. Again, this is close in meaning to the word that preceded it, humility, sometimes translated as meekness. And while some see gentleness or meekness as, as describing someone with no backbone, clearly that's not the idea at all. Rather, what it refers to is somebody who is willing to suffer injury as opposed to inflicting injury. When there is a disagreement, the gentle person, the meek person doesn't attack. You know where we most often see a lack of this quality? Let me say this. Back up for a second. Do you know where I most often see a lack of this quality in myself? It's when I believe I'm standing for the truth. Somehow in my mind... I think that I have to be nasty or harsh when I'm standing for the truth against error. Maybe you have that same disposition. I don't know. But Peter, in, in, his, in his epistle, this first epistle, chapter 3 and verse 15, he uses the same Greek word when he says this, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. 
I'd like to stop right there. What does he say next? Yet with gentleness. That's our same word. Yes, stand ready to make a defense. Yes, you know, strive for the truth. But do it with gentleness. And this is a question we have to continually be asking here in regard to each of these articles of clothing. Is it on me? Remember the old Nike commercial, is it in you? I'm saying, is it on you? Is this piece of clothing on you? Are you wearing this? Am I wearing this? Finally, Paul tells us that we must put on forbearance or patience. I don't know, I don't have a textual warrant to say this, that one of these is harder than the others, but if one is harder than the rest, this may be it. Maybe that's why it's last. There are two Greek words in, in the New Testament that are translated similarly. similarly. There's this word and, and one other word, hupomone. Both have the idea of steadfast endurance, but there's an important exception between the two. One of the words has the idea of enduring difficulty when there's no other option. That's the word I said. I'm not going to say it again. That's the Greek word I said. That's not our Greek word here. Our word translated by the Nazi is patience refers to a person who has the power to avenge themselves but refrains from exercising that power. This is a totally different thing. This is not you're getting beat down by somebody much bigger than you and you you know you just don't fight back cuz to do so would hasten your death. This is somebody much smaller than you that you could you could handle and you just take it and you don't fight back. You certainly have the ability to, but you don't. These are our new clothes then. As opposed to the clothes of abusive speech, malice, slander, anger, wrath, our new clothes, our new wardrobe is hearts of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. This is what we must put on. And I would say this is what we can put on. Why? Because of those realities at the beginning of verse 12, because we're chosen, we're holy, we're greatly loved. And when we do this, when we put these virtues on, something is going to happen. A change is going to take place, not just in our lives, but in the lives of our church and our churches. Our relationships with other believers are going to be directly affected when we're wearing these right new clothes. But how? How does that happen? Paul tells us that as a result of putting on these virtues, we will bear with and forgive one another. You see this in verse 13. As you read this verse, and as, or as we read it earlier, you may be at first tempted to see those two words as uh, bearing with and forgiving as commands, but really they're better understood <coughs> as showing the result of putting on those virtues of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. They're not commands at all, but rather they're, they're results contact, connected to the imperative put on of verse 12. And that first... That first phrase there, bearing with one another, means to regard with tolerance, to endure, to put up with. And the idea here is that of putting up with the immature actions and attitudes of other people, putting up with their idiosyncrasies. I don't have any of those, so you'll hear about that. Putting up with their inconsistencies. Even guys putting up with their bad or incomplete theology. 
Paul is saying that in the body of Christ, in the church, we put up with each other. We don't retaliate against one another. The church is the one place on this planet where people should be able to bear with one another. Now, why is that? Because in the church, we should understand the doctrine of sin, that it's all-encompassing and it's pervasive, and that it's a sickness we all suffer from. And because here in the church, we understand the process of sanctification, that we all are in a process. None of us, none of us have arrived. But what's the reaction in most churches when somebody feels mistreated? When they bumped up against somebody's particular idiosyncrasy? What do people love to do? They love to leave. I'm going to leave this church. I don't, they say this, I don't have to put up with this. I'll go somewhere where I don't have to deal with that. Good luck, by the way. But scripture says this, you do have to put up with it. You do have to. And this is a great danger in our time, even more, much more so than in the days of the Colossian church. Somebody wanted to leave that church. They couldn't just go up the street to First Baptist Church of XYZ. They couldn't just leave and go. There weren't, they couldn't, you know, they weren't going to be traveling to Ephesus every Sunday or Saturday or whenever they had their services. It wasn't really an option then, but it's an option now. At least we see it that way. We've got a church on every corner. Some place will suit you. We have to stop seeing this as an option. I know I'm sort of preaching to the choir here, okay, but we do have to stop seeing this as an option. It's not an option to leave. We have to put up with each other. If we put on the virtues of verse 12, we will be people characterized by bearing with one another. If you have a heart of compassion, if you're kind and humble and gentle and patient, guess what? You're going to bear with each other. If all of us are wearing these clothes... We're going to put up with each other. But here's the thing. It, all, it goes way past that. And, and I like the way Paul puts the easier one first, as if that's easy. We also have to be people who are characterized by forgiving each other. Again, if we put on those virtues, we will be people who are characterized by forgiving those who sin against us. That word translated here, forgiving, means to give freely as a favor, to give graciously to cancel a sum of money that's owed, to show oneself gracious by forgiving wrong, wrongdoing. And Paul says, if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. By the way, that if there, that, that implies no doubt as to whether or not we will have a complaint against each other. This is not just, it's not, well, maybe perhaps if, if by some stretch of the imagination this happens. We might say, Again, Ryan translation, if one has a complaint against another, and you will. We know this experientially, right? We will have opportunities for complaint against each other. And we will have opportunities, and that's plural, by the way, not an opportunity, but opportunities to practice forgiveness, even in this great little church. Lest we think that the forgiveness Paul speaks of here is optional, he adds a final penetrating line in verse 14. I wish he would have stopped. Just forgive one, each other, one another. That's hard enough. What does he say, though, at the end? Just as the Lord forgave you, so also you 
and we can we can include there forgive. It's sort of a lift that is let it's left out, but that's the idea. Just as the Lord forgave you, so you also forgive. This line tells us much about the nature of the forgiveness we are to grant to others. It's to be the same in the same manner that we have been forgiven by God. Well, that raises an important question. What has God forgiven us? What has he forgiven us? Everything. Everything. Perhaps the best passage about the nature of God's forgiveness and our subsequent responsibility to forgive others is Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. And that's the passage where in response to Peter's question regarding forgiveness, remember how often shall I forgive my brother? Jesus offers that parable. Now, because of time, we're not going to take the time. We can can flip over there. We're not going to read the passage in its entirety. But I just want to walk through it very briefly. The parable basically goes like this, and you're familiar with it. The king determines he's going to settle his accounts. And he discovers that there's one particular slave who owes him a great deal of money And so he calls him in and he demands payment. Payment or slavery, those are this man's options. And what does the slave do? He falls down and he begs for patience. He begs, just time, more time, that's all I need. And the king, in his graciousness, for reasons known only to him, wipes out this man's debt. And this man leaves. He's probably leaping for joy. And he encounters another person, another slave, who owes him some money. And he refuses to forgive that person their smaller debt. The word travels back to the king. And what does the king do? He reinstates the debt. The man is going to be thrown in prison until he can pay it back. Now here's what's sho- When you just read that in, in English, it's shocking enough. But when you, when you start to understand the amounts of money that are being talked about here the story gets even more unreal. Now, I could really, really bore you and go into detailed calculations, which I won't do. My mic size just went like that. I won't do that. But what did that first slave owe? He owed 10,000 talents. We're like, okay, so what, 10,000 talents? That's 10,000 talents. Maybe you think $10,000. To pay off one talent, just one, that man would have to work six days a week for 20 years, one talent. He owed 10,000 of them. Six days a week for 200,000 years to pay off this debt. And very round numbers, and my calculations could be wrong, that's about $6 billion with a B. In other words, what's Jesus trying to get across? He owed an amount he could never even hope to pay off. There, 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 it, it's This is... Complete hyperbole here on the part of Christ. He owed an amount that he could never pay. He says, be patient with me and I'll pay it back. That's a joke. He could never pay this money back. Now, what was the amount that this man, who then turned around and was unforgiving, what what was the amount he was owed? 100 denarii, or denarii. About three months' pay. That's what he was owed, about three months' pay. No comparison to the amount that that he had owed. This is how Jesus forgives. This is how the king forgives. 
Now back to our passage. What does he say to you and me? This is how you have to forgive. You have to forgive the same way. Somebody owes you $6 billion, let it go. Remember, we're, we're interested in that Matthew 18 passage because it reveals something about what we're studying here, namely how it is that God forgives. A couple things to point out regarding this. He forgives in response to repentance. What does it say in verse 26 of, of Matthew 18, if you're still there, about the slave? When, he, when the king told him his debt, he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. He just laid out, face on the ground, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. We know that was a, a, there was no way he could do it, but he admitted the debt. He acknowledged the debt. What do you think might have happened if the slave had refused to acknowledge his debt? What if when the king called him in, he said, you're nuts, your records are wrong. I don't owe you $6 billion. I don't know what you're talking about. Do you think he would have received forgiveness of his debt? No. No. The king forgives in response to repentance. God forgives in response to repentance. Second of all, he forgives completely, no matter what the debt. Completely. Let me ask you a question. Are you a $6 billion forgiver? When somebody comes to you and they repent of something they've done wrong, do you hold them to account or do you forgive them completely like Jesus forgave you? I can't answer that for you. I think you know in your heart which one it is. But we must always have this attitude, this disposition, this readiness to forgive others. Our king stands ready to forgive if we only repent. And when we repent, he forgives all. This is how we have to forgive. We stand ready to forgive. When somebody wrongs us, we're ready to forgive them. If they repent, we grant forgiveness completely with no, with no holdbacks. As a church, we're very different people from very different backgrounds. We have various shapes and colors of baggage that we carry around different sins that we battle, and I can speak honestly for myself of a variety of idiosyncrasies. And amid all these differences, we are forced together into a group, and we must be willing to forgive each other. And that's hard enough, but we must be willing to forgive each other exactly the way the Lord forgave us. I don't know about you, that's a heavy, that, that's, a, that's a heavy command. That's a heavy demand on us. It's not easy, but it's right. Maybe you say, I can't do that. I can't forgive. I won't forgive. When I would say to you, this is a dangerous place to be. It's a dangerous place to be. If you say, I can't, I want to remind you that if you are a believer, you have a new nature. You're chosen. You're holy. You're greatly and deeply loved. Yes, you can. And if you won't forgive or you truly can't forgive, the only possibility, guys, is that you don't know Christ and you know your heart. If you refuse to forgive and you can't forgive and you won't forgive, 
You don't know him. I would beg you to repent and to turn to him tonight. There's only one reason why a true believer, why a true Christian wouldn't have victory in this area of bearing with and forgiving. That he or she would be unable to get along with fellow Christians. That's because there's one more article of clothing we haven't talked about yet. One more article of clothing, and it's key. It's very important that we have to put on. We see this in the overarching command of verse 14. It is the command to put on love. The command to put on there, again, is implied. But Paul is saying, in addition to the virtues I've already told you, you must put on love. Importance of love, it can't be overstated. And in fact, I believe he's, he's separated it out here intentionally because of its vital importance. Jesus said in John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Paul himself also highlights the importance of love at the end of that great love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, where he says, but, but now faith, hope, love abide, these three. Well, then what does he say? You know. But the greatest of these is love. The word translated at the end of this verse, bond of unity, it refers to something that binds things together. It's used elsewhere of, of ligaments in the body. But here in our context, in this, in this picture of putting on clothes, of putting on, taking off old clothes and putting on new ones, the picture Paul is painting is that of a belt. It is a belt that's holding all our new clothes together. It just maybe you think of it in a couple ways. It's it's the perfect complementary color. You can't see my belt because I wear my shirts untucked, but it's black. It's not a good tie-in. But you girls know this. You know, your belt is perfectly complementary in color. Not just that, but it's a secure belt, and it just ties everything together. It ties the look of the clothes together. It ties the clothes together securely. And if we attempt to put on these virtues we looked at in verse 12, without love, if we try to bear with one another and forgive one another without love, what we have is nothing more than legalism. We have actions without heart. We have nothing more than a bunch of imposed policies. But as believers, we have had this love placed in our hearts by God. And it's a love that grows and matures. And its function is that of being the perfect bond of unity, that of being the perfect belt to tie the virtues in our church body together. If we want to have a church that is unified, where people serve one another and love one another and forgive one another, if we want to be a body that is characterized by these virtues, we have to have love. So how do we do this practically? How do we put on these clothes? Paul's told us what we are to put on. Hearts of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And he's told us what the results will be. We will bear with and forgive one another. Now he tells us how we can go on to obey the command to put on. What we must do in order for the unity of verse 14 to be a reality. And the only way that this can be done is through Christ, as Paul specifies in the next three verses, through Christ's peace, through Christ's word, and through Christ's name. 
So we come to that second round of commands, how we can do this. First of all, by letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, verse 15. Continuing the theme of love and unity from verse 14, Paul opens verse 15 for the command for believers to be ruled and controlled by the peace of Christ. This is a call matching earlier exhortations for a radical change in the motivation of of the believer's actions. No longer can our mission control center be run by our own passions, but rather it must be controlled by the peace that Christ gives. What is this peace that must rule in our hearts? Well, the moment we received Christ, the moment we were justified, our war with God was over. And now we have, as Paul says in Romans 5.1, we have peace with God. It's as if we've signed a peace treaty with God. There's no more war. We're no longer enemies. But there's another aspect to peace here that I believe Paul is speaking of. This peace is a disposition of rest, a feeling of security. And both of these are involved here. However, having peace with God isn't the same as having his peace rule in our lives. A peace that rules in our lives is an inner peace, a calm that results from knowing that everything is right between us and God and between us and other believers. The key to understanding what Paul is getting at here is that little word rule. The Greek word was initially used in reference to an umpire, basically the activity of an umpire whose, whose job was at the games was to direct, to arbitrate, to decide the contest. The meaning broadened out to have the idea of presiding or ruling, of having sway. And Paul is saying here that we must let Christ's peace be the umpire in our lives. When Christ's peace calls a ball, it's a ball. When it calls a strike, it's a strike. Christ's peace rules. It is the umpire. So as MacArthur points out, when this peace rules our lives, it should make us consider two factors in any decision we make. First, is it consistent with the fact that we are at peace with God and on the same side? And secondly, does it preserve our oneness or our peace with God? Specifically, in the context of of relationships between believers and the church, this peace is to be the referee, the umpire in all of our conflicts. When we have conflict among each other, and we will, Christ's peace must rule in our hearts. And I would say that if we've lost this peace, it's because we've insisted on having our own way. Because when peace rules in our hearts, we won't do anything, we don't want to do anything that will disrupt the unity of the church. The reason Christ's peace must rule in our hearts is because, as he mentions, we are called in one body. The peace that Paul speaks of is not just an internal reality, it also has an effect on on our relationships between believers. And it's on this basis that Paul says we have been called in one body, and it's because of this peace with Christ and peace in our hearts that we can live in unity with each other. But what is it that should give us the motivation that should encourage us to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts? Notice the end of verse 15. He says, and be thankful. By the way, this is not just an add-on. It's not just, uh, just to throw this on real quick and be thankful. This is another command. Now, what are we to be thankful for? What are we thankful for Christ's peace? 
And the more we have this, the more we want to preserve it. So I would encourage you to be thankful for Christ's peace if you had it. Remember a time when you didn't have it. And that gratitude for the peace of Christ will drive you to do everything you can to promote that peace. How then do we put on Christ's virtues? We do it by letting his peace rule our hearts and our reactions to others. We let it be the umpire in our hearts. Do you have Christ's peace? The fact is, if we've lost it, it's not due to anything but our own sin. It's not due to anything but our own ungratefulness. And you can get it back. We can get it back by confessing our sin to God. And if we've hurt someone else by going to that person and confessing it to them, by repenting of it. There's one warning worth mentioning in relation to this idea of peace. Because peace is a subjective feeling. We have to be careful about basing our actions on it alone because our subjective feelings can be misleading. But Paul goes on then to tell us something else that will promote unity, that will help us put on the virtues of Christ, something more objective, and that is the word of God. When he says in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. When the word of Christ is richly, fully dwelling in us, the fact is we will be controlled by what he wants. We will be controlled by what he says, if this is true. And what is the word of Christ? Well, very specifically, it's the gospel, but but more broadly, it's the whole revelation, the whole counsel of God. That word translated dwell there means something important. It's worth pointing out. It means to live in, to dwell in, to take up residence in, not as a visitor or a renter, but somebody or something that is at home. He's saying the word of Christ is at home in your heart. It's taken up permanent residence. That following modifier richly tells us just how the word of Christ should dwell in us in abundance. What is Paul's point then? His point is that we have God's word in us so much so that it's a permanent part of our lives. More than that, it's, it's to be in us not just as a resident, but as an operating powerful force that drives every action. Have you ever been around somebody like this? Whose every word seemed to be saturated with scripture? When we're not like that, those people are annoying to us, I'll be honest. They're con- because they convict us. But are you that kind of person? Are you so saturated with scripture? Does it so dwell in your heart that it just it just comes out of you and it drives your every action? Listen, when we take God's word in richly and we are under his control, then we will be putting on his virtues. We will be becoming Christ-like. So why is it that there are so many conflicts in churches? I would submit that it's because so few Christians have Christ's word dwelling in them richly. What they do have dwelling in them richly is their own thoughts, their own opinions, their own desires, their own needs. What I have dwelling in me far too richly is my own thoughts, my own needs, my own desires, my own plans, rather than Christ's word. In order for the word of Christ to dwell richly in us, we're going to have to do more than listen to a couple sermons a week. 
We have to immerse ourselves in the word, read it, memorize it, and then we have to practice it. And if we do this, our church will look totally different. We have people who are passionately pursuing knowing God and what he has revealed in his word. And the result will be twofold. We will be teaching and admonishing one another. What will happen is that we will be teaching and admonishing each other in all wisdom. When our lives are full of Christ's word, when it's overflowing in us, we cannot help but be busy sharing it with each other, teaching each other. That's the positive instruction, either in this sort of formal setting or more informal. In all our conversations, I had a lunch with Omar the other day, and, and you know what? He taught me. We weren't we're sitting down having a Bible study, but he taught me from God's word. He didn't quote scripture and verse, but he taught me. So in, in a formal setting like this, in an informal setting like lunch, we should be teaching each other positive instruction. We should also be admonishing each other. That's sort of the negative side, warning, counseling, about people, counseling people about avoiding or stopping improper or dangerous patterns of behavior. We should be doing that, not just Mike and Mark as the elders, but to each other. When you see something in my life and you go, man, I'm concerned about that, you should love me enough, you should be full enough of Christ's word to come and help me with that, and I should do the same to you. This is what will happen in a body that is word-saturated. We will teach and admonish each other. So that's one result. When the word of Christ dwells in us richly, we will teach and admonish one another. Well, there's another result, and that is this. It will also produce thankful worship to God by singing to him. Paul says that when the word of Christ is richly dwelling in us, we show this by thankful worship, by singing to God. And that's a normal human reaction, isn't it? But we're just when we're just excited about something, we sing. Some guys, you know, when you, you know, when you fall in love and nobody's in the, you know, you're in the bathroom by yourself, you sing in the shower about the woman you love or whatever, you know. We express ourselves in song when we're filled with, when we're filled with something. It's a natural, and even if you can't sing, I know you might do it in private, but you sing. We all do it. When we're filled with love for someone, we praise them often by singing. We're not just talking about anyone here, are we? We're talking about singing to the Lord. And what is it that we should sing to him? A lot of people have a lot of opinions about this. A lot of people are dogmatic about those opinions, and most of them are wrong. So what is it that we should sing to the Lord? Paul tells us here, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And we won't spend a great deal of time on this because the, the differentiation between each of these is is subtle, and it's, you don't want to be too dogmatic about it. But there, there are some differences here worth looking at briefly. Psalms, clearly you know what those are, right? Psalms taken from the Old Testament Psalter originally, which had music. Unfortunately, Paul, they didn't write down the music. Maybe they had a different musical notation. I don't know. But they didn't leave it for us. We don't have the music, but we have the words. And so Paul tells us here, sing in worship by singing, participate in worship by singing psalms. And he goes on to mention hymns. This is a song with religious content, a hymn or a song of praise, especially in honor of a deity, and we would say especially in honor of Christ. These are songs that are expressions of praise to God. There are a couple possible examples in the New Testament, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Mark can give you more detail on that later if you want. Philippians 2, 6 through 11. 
we know that Paul and Silas sang these, sang hymns, sang these songs of praise to God in Acts 16.25 when they were in prison. But what is the key here? It is not the style that Paul is dealing with. It's, that's not what's important. It's the content. It's a song of praise to God. Praise for who he is. Praise for what he has done and what he will do. And finally, he mentions spiritual songs. These are spiritual songs as opposed to secular songs, with a, songs with a spiritual nature, perhaps even testimony songs. They're songs that dwell on biblical themes and messages other than direct praise to God. So what is Paul saying? When we are filled with the word of Christ, our heart of thankfulness cannot but break out in worship to him. And this kind of worship finds its expression in the public singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And Paul doesn't intend to give us a liturgy here. He's not giving the final definitive word on how we're to have a worship service. But there are a couple truths worth mentioning briefly that emerge from this verse. First of all, there's a direct relationship between our understanding of the Bible and how our worship is expressed in song. Our theology determines our music. Secondly, everything we sing should be biblical. The issue is not the musical style. According to the text, the issue is, is it biblical? Does it please God? And what's Paul's point? The word of Christ should be so much a part of us that it comes out in teaching and admonishing each other and in praise to God. So we put on virtue by letting Christ's peace rule in our hearts, by letting Christ's word dwell in us richly, and by letting Christ's name direct our lives. And we'll get this last point briefly. We must let Christ's name direct our speech and behavior. What does Paul mean when he says that we are to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus? He doesn't mean we use this as some sort of spiritual mantra that as I'm walking up here, I'm saying, I'm going to preach in the name of Jesus Christ. I'm going to, hopefully I'm going to do that, but it's not some magical phrase I say. That's all Paul's getting at. What he does mean is that everything we say or do must be done in a way that's consistent with Christ's character and will. It means that if Jesus were here, he'd do the same thing. Those ubiquitous bracelets, the WWJD bracelets. If only people actually followed that. What Paul is saying here, speak and act like Jesus Christ. If you're a parent, have you ever told your kids that they're going to a friend's house or maybe... I've talked to Elliot about this. We're going to play uh, baseball. Remember who you represent, your gear. You represent our family. You leave this house outside. You, you represent our family. Well, this is what Paul is saying, much more important than representing the gears or the Robinsons or the Pueblas or the Sprats. If I left you out, I'm sorry, Samix. Paul is saying you are a member of the family of Christ His name is your name, so speak and act like it. You represent him. This is this final overarching command. It really sums up and supports everything in this passage. It's very comprehensive. Whatever you do, do all. Paul leaves us no wiggle room. No part of our lives are exempt from this command. Nothing gets away from it. We must do everything, all in the name of Christ or according to Christ's name. It's simple, too. It's not another detailed list of vices and virtues that cover every aspect of of life. It's an overarching and, and overwhelming theme that covers everything in our lives. 
And it's a delightful command. We don't obey under compulsion, but we obey, as he says at the end of verse 17, freely with thanksgiving. This doing everything in the name of Christ is a duty of delight. Contrast this with the legalistic teaching and the teaching of the Colossian believers, the Colossian heretics, I'm sorry. And this command to do all is both at the same time simple, right? I mean, he has just just simplified it, everything. This, Paul, yeah, that, everything. And it's also impossibly difficult. Lest we begin to think this is something we can do under our own power as we go through these lists of things we must put on, Paul ends with a simple and impossible command to do all. If he said do most, we could live with that. To do all in the name of Christ. There's one common theme in each of these how-to commands, and you probably noticed it as we move through them. How does each one end? Each end with this idea of thankfulness. Let the peace of Christ rule and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell with thankfulness. Let the name of Christ direct giving thanks. And really, thankfulness for what Christ has done undergirds everything in this passage, as well as in verses 5 to 11. Inerrant and thankfulness is the acknowledgement of a debt. And a thankful person will be compassionate, kind, humble, meek, and patient. A thankful person will bear with others and forgive others. A thankful person will have Christ's peace ruling in their life. They will worship in song and lovingly submit to the name of the one to whom they owe their thanks. Thankfulness then really undergirds everything that Paul has taught us in this passage. As we look at these virtues of verse 12 that we have to put on and think about how we can go about this task, what should our reaction be? What are we to do? Listen, if we're believers, I feel like I'm safe in saying this. We all have to make adjustments. We all have to be willing to examine ourselves and do that. But our bent is this, is to make excuses and harden our hearts. To explain away why we don't match up with these things. Why we don't have this article of clothing on or that article of clothing. And just say, that's who I am. And I'm going to say to myself, and I want to say to you, don't do that. Don't harden yourself against what God may be showing you needs to change in your life. Paul has told us to put on these virtues of Christ, to put on these new clothes. Remember, this isn't optional for the believer. Remember, as I mentioned earlier, there's a battle for holiness going on, and it's a battle that can only be won as we submit to God. Paul told us how to fight this battle, beginning back in verse 5 of this chapter. Kill sexual sin, put off our old clothes of anger and evil speech, and put on the new clothes that Christ has given us, clothes of compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And we do this only by letting Christ, by letting Christ's peace rule, by being filled with Christ's word, and by being directed by his name. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage we looked at tonight. Thank you that you enable us to do these things. They're impossible. It is a, it is a tall order, an impossible order. For us to put on these clothes, to bear with, to forgive each other. 
And even the how-tos seem impossible, Lord. We, we have to let your peace and your word and your name drive us. We're so dependent on you. Help us not, help me not to make excuses. Lord, to accept those areas that have got to change. To beg you for your help and, and, and seek you out in your word. And, and I know your promises that you will change me and you will change us and our churches. So we ask for your help tonight. Your will, we, we want, Lord, first of all, that heart of willingness to change and then your grace to affect that change in us. In your name we pray, amen.